0: What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? Then this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Natalie Aravallo, an environmental designer, urban researcher and lecturer. We will talk about her vision for the future of cities, environmental behavior research, human sensing and its effects on psychology and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Natalie has a PhD in environmental design, and she is an urban researcher and lecturer. She applies evidence from environmental behaviour research into architecture and urban design. Her inspiration to pursue the field of environmental behaviour was inspired through her parents who practice architecture and psychology. Another motivation to connect the human mind with the environment sparked through her career as a semi-professional triathlete back in her native country, Ecuador. Through both motives, she understood the importance of training our minds to feel better in our environments where we work, live and play. Since then, she has carried out international research focused on achieving higher levels of community well-being and supporting on the translation of people's views into urban designs and policymaking. Particularly, she conducts research around the fields of crime prevention through environmental design, neuroarchitecture, and environmental psychology channeling into development of publications, workshops, training, and design studio curricula. Currently, she explores a better way to bridge the fields of architecture and psychology, engaging in conversations published on her website, which can be found in the show notes. And with that, Natalie, welcome to the podcast. Natalie, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. Let's start with environmental behavior research. What it is and what are the benefits of such research?
1: Thank you, Fanny. And what it is, is basically, is the study of the psychology of humans and how we interact in our environments. It could be natural environments. It could be built environments. In my case, I focus in built environments, of course, because of my background in architecture and sustainability. When I mean about the psychology of humans, it means understanding this uh, psychological process, such as sensing through, or senses, obviously, Perceiving the space, having thoughts or cognitive processes in our brains, and then acting, right, as a result of all the psychological process. I think after the pandemic times, these sort of topics came surface and became more interesting, I think, for designers because, you know, we realized that we spent so much time indoors and how our spaces affect us in terms of our emotions or perceptions is just very relevant for ourselves. Yeah, so I think this is really a topic that has been my passion since my undergrad studies. But actually, I wasn't really sure what I was doing, to tell you the truth. I didn't know that this was the field of environmental behavior until my master's degree when I Mm -hmm. study about pro-environmental behaviors of office workers in a high-rise building in China. Mm It was quite interesting. And then I studied the perceptions of fear of crime in university campuses. So all this research I have taken through my path is just pointing out towards this relationship that we have or psychology is exposed to our environments, right? So I'm very passionate about it and I would love to continue researching topics like this.
0: Why do you say that COVID highlighted this environmental behaviour research and how did it highlight the connections?
1: All the time we spend indoors, which was, you know, because of the lockdowns, it made us realise that potentially some of our spaces are not appropriate to spend so long that maybe the colours of our walls were annoying us after so many hours of being indoors. I can give you an example from my experience. We used to live in a townhouse, a little bit old. And in our main dormitory, the windows were in the ceiling almost. We didn't have connection with nature. We didn't have windows. So it was almost like a prison, to tell you the truth. And we couldn't really move at that time because it was difficult because of lockdowns. But I was starting to feel after some time of being for so long indoors, like a prisoner, I didn't have any connection with the outdoor. I was really feeling enclosed. This internal feeling that tells you that this is not correct. I don't feel good. So I think there were some examples like that that I heard from friends. The other one that we were allowed to go outside and walk only around uh, five kilometers or perimeters, right? It was about appreciating so much our green spaces. When you go outside, you wanted to have the freedom, feel like you can do anything, even though we had this limitation. So again, it's about these feelings that we perceive in our environments. Also seeing someone else walking around you, it was such a like, whoa. I'm kind of connecting at least through my eyes only, right? Just to look at other people, it was like a big relief to feel like you are not alone in the world. It's just someone else. It was so nice to see, you know, the dogs, people walking the dogs or or some of their kids playing around. That's um, the relationship I made through the pandemic times. And I think Another example, it can be like, I don't know if you hear, heard, but we see that now people are talking a lot about mental health, creating about the frameworks and policies, guidelines. They are really pushing towards this type of understanding and connecting, not specifically design. That's what I'm saying. And that's what I'm here today to talk, to persuade more followers into this topic, because it's really relevant in our environments really affect us.
0: When you are talking about sensing, which senses are you talking about? So you mentioned seeing, you mentioned hearing. What else can we think about when we are examining our own environments and we want to find out what of those environments make us happy or make us desperate to get out
1: of that environment? We have our five senses, right? Right sight, smelling, hearing, uh, taste, and touch. Through my PhD, actually, I realized that it's quite challenging to identify or to really design for enhancing or engaging some of our senses, for instance, Mm -hmm. smell and taste. These two senses, they are very much connected and they are also connected with memories. And I can give you an example. One of my participants was walking through the university campuses where he was studying and he smelled this coffee, smell of food. Because of only this smell, it came to his memories about family meetings, about gatherings with their mates. And because of only the smell, he immediately felt much better in that Mm. specific space, which wasn't really nicely designed. So it's just combining and understanding these two types of connections, right? There is also an interesting example, and I can tell you that in today's design practices, what they are doing, they are engaging or trying to enhance our senses, for instance, in theme parks. What they are trying to tell you is like you are in a different world, maybe in the future, completely different place. So I read recently one article that in Europe, actually, they are creating this theme park with different sorts of smells that they've never explored before, such as the smell of ice creams, the smell of rain. Even, they are really (laughs) going the extra mile. It's quite interesting. And why they are doing that? Because they want us to feel, to play, engage our senses and make us feel that we are in a different world, in a different part. So it's just very exciting. And with this whole environmental
0: behavior research
1: background,
0: what does the future of cities mean to you?
1: It's a great opportunity to create those circumstances to accept and include the psychology of people through the design processes, but as well as in retrofitting processes. And why I'm saying acceptance, as I mentioned earlier, it's because currently it's just very limited what we see in practice the majority of designers at this point rather focusing the client's needs rather than the final users of the space and for a logical reason, right? We're talking about budgets and we're talking about time and effort because it's not really a straightforward process. It can take a good time and expertise and budget to conduct this sort of research. But this gap actually between practice and The easiness of translating the intangible concepts such as emotions and perceptions into final designs is actually not new. From the 70s, some authors, such as Rapoport, actually famous environmental designer, he's one of my favorite authors, he was impressed because he saw, wow, like everybody's really accepting the field. We are going to be happy. In the 70s, it was really rising. But then in 90s, because of all the factors I mentioned, it declined again. And up to now that you see these very strong worldwide events really push us to start thinking new ways to connect as the individuals, with our environments. So, yeah, I think this big gap between the theory and practice is one of the limits to accept the psychology of us, of humans. It's important for designs. Together with this, of course, is the inclusion of methodologies that can help to transfer these intangible concepts into buildable product design products, which is the goal of designers. So in that sense, I think the future of cities to me means finding these opportunities for acceptance, acknowledge, and inclusion of the intangible dimension which of human psychology, such as emotions of fear, for instance, emotions of happiness, into designs, as well as in retrofitting designs, so projects that are already completed. Then what are the three biggest fears or concerns regarding the future of cities? When I was thinking about this question, it just so much to talk about. It's very interesting. And when you look, because of course I did research preparation for this (laughs) talk, when you just type in Google future, right, everything that comes up is about digital, smart, intelligent, automated. So all these kind of evolved words that Sound very cool. Sound very, wow, right? Interesting. But on the other hand, they are also coming out some other words such as cybersecurity, privacy awareness, surveillance. So I think that that's where my concern comes in because there is a very thin line between the use and abuse of technology. You see, in today's world, we are very much connected with disclosing our private information, unlocking passwords with our fingerprints or through facial recognition. All of this is just brings up some fears about over policing, about ethics, about mm-hmm. consent. Are we really aware of what we are giving up? Honestly, my personal opinion, I think. I'm not uh, aware of what I'm saying. Yes, sometimes when I download an app and you just click, 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 accept and and that's it. You are not sure. I can give you another example in, in a public space, for instance, shopping malls in UK. Some of them are using these thermal surveillance cameras and this was due to COVID. They can keep track of who's having the higher temperature, right? I mean, relying fully in this type of technologies, I think it's quite dangerous as well. And instead of gathering accurate information, you can just misinform yourself. For instance, there are groups of people that naturally will have a higher body temperature, such as pregnant women. But if you are just absolutely saying, okay, everyone that is higher than 37 Celsius in body temperature, they are not entering in the shopping mode, right? That's when this marginalization of different groups can happen. And this is also what I am kind of concerned in the future. I think, let's say... The second concern I have, it would be about people's capacity to adapt and live in those futuristic cities taken from science fiction movies <laughs> that we see. They are just fantastic infrastructures so with flying cars and huge buildings. In some ways it looks very exciting, but in some others are a bit unrealistic in my point of view. I think my this point... It's based in concepts of evolutive psychology. This evolutive psychology, what it does is just studies or examines how the brain our brains took millions of years to develop and evolve and adapt to our environments. An example would be our first humans that were living rough lives, just hunting, collecting. And in contemporary times, you see, now we got used to TV, now we're used to social media. But a good example to realize how for some brains it's really challenging to adapt to today's world is just looking at our grandmas when they are using mobile phones, for instance. My grandma is just such a hard task to learn, to adapt herself to this new technology. You know, you explain her a thousand times. You just press this button, press this other thing. And she's just like, no, she doesn't get it. <laughs> so that's a very simple example, but I believe this adaptability, it can take up to 100 years. So if you're just proposing a new smart city built from scratch, such as the line in Saudi Arabia, this new project that it came up, which is, yeah, as the name suggests, it's just a city shape in a slender line up to 100 kilometers of length. It has only 200 meters of width and 500 meters tall. So I'm just wondering if this concept, besides being very interesting, but how are they going to invite everyone to start living in a place that is super new for us, that according to those measurements I just told you, it will be extremely dense because it will host 9 million people. For me, it just seems very unrealistic. So the capacity of people to adapt to these new environments. For instance, Paul Bloom, Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Science of Yale University, he mentions that there are some factors influencing people that they might not be able to cope with. And density is one of them. We are not programmed as humans to live with so many people around us. I'm just concerned that projects like that, if they ever take place, It would be a complete disaster in many ways. Adaptation could be one of them. And this takes me actually to my third point, which is quite connected. If this adaptation doesn't happen with these new futuristic cities because they are not livable, they will turn into ghost towns, right? And it will be a complete waste of resources. We already see this type of anomalies happening. I think China... With the Ordos, it's one of the examples. I was there when I lived in China and it feels very scary to be there, honestly. It's like you feel you are the last person in the world. Like the world ends and it's nobody else around you. It's just complete cities full of... Everything necessary, shopping malls, stores, residences, stadiums. It's like huge infrastructure, roads, gigantic highways. But there's really no one there. <laughs> no one. You are the only person walking there. It's tremendously it's scary. And in China, it's not the only place that have this sort of place. It's also... For instance, in the U.S., also I've seen in in Mississippi, there are some places that were abandoned because of pollution. I believe in Europe, there are also places like that. That's one of my other concerns. How the cities will end up, they will turn into tremendous waste of resources, economic resources, and also for the planet, right? A tremendous impact for the planet. Again, elaborating, (laughs) I could say in this point a bit more. These futuristic projects, I think they can, some of them, if they are not capable to invite everyone or to be accessible economically, socially for everyone, they will start showing up these inequalities. So who can access to healthy cities, to livable cities? Maybe I don't know how much it's going to cost living in the line, for instance. Am I able to afford this? These sort of projects might highlight more the gap between the rich and the poor. That could be one of the concerns I have. Together with, for instance, also when we talk about health inequality, and actually now it's happening. We have rivers that are contaminated. Recently, the river Oder in the boundary with Poland in Germany, they are studying what happened there. But all these interviews that they are conducting with the people that live nearby, they are tremendously sad, disappointed. They feel their lives are already ruined because they used to fish there. They used to have some fun with their families. But now that the river is contaminated, it's like, where are they going to go? <laughs> so I believe this land, at some point, it will become just abandoned. And potentially, maybe some of these people, they won't have opportunity to go to a place that will be healthy, livable for them. So I think that's when we talk about these health inequalities. I can give you another example from my country in from Latin America, the place where I'm coming from. I remember since I was a kid, there were many, many industrial accidents, such as petrol spills. And that was extremely sad to see how the animals were dying. People were evacuating from their houses. They were being refuged somewhere else. And the irresponsibility of those mostly international companies, they were just uh, abandoned, those places, and damaging. They were just fully damaged, and they were just moving to the next one. I think that's one of my concerns, that it would be just easy to destroy the planet, destroy societies, destroy the health of some communities, and then just uh, move on to the next space and leave this highlighting the social, economical and health inequalities through different sorts of projects.
0: You've mentioned a lot of concerns. Do you have opportunities for the future of cities? Do you see Mm -hmm. that there are opportunities?
1: (laughs) Yes, I have also good ideas. And hopefully that's the positive side. Yeah, of course. One of the opportunities I see in the future is reinventing spaces. When I mean reinventing, it's not only about changing the function of some specific spaces, but also it's about the meaning we can give to people about those spaces. Let's take the example of one of the recently debated spaces such as cemeteries. I think cemeteries they became very important again in pandemic times because some people, the only green patch they have nearby their houses, it was a cemetery. They only had to just go and walk around this place. And some of them were feeling strange. Some of them were feeling fearful. But it was sparking rather negative emotions in this type of space because we are not programmed to consider a cemetery like a place of stay unless you have to, right? Unless you have um, personal reasons to go and visit. I think... There is a big opportunity for changing the meaning we're giving to different spaces. Like I imagine cemeteries becoming places for silence, for relaxing, for meditation, for practicing this, this sort of a sport that make you talk with yourself that are becoming also very trendy. And I think this is important as well, because again, we're talking about this mental health. We're talking about giving ourselves a moment of silence in this such a destructive world we're living in with so much things happening, media, so many apps, so many distractions around us. So I think that's the value of these spaces, but it's not really only about designing a weather cemetery with all these functions. Again, it's not really about installing a playground in there. It's not really about installing some benches in there. Because we need to work with the minds of the users of this space. We need to make them realize that this is actually a place for relaxation. It is a place for reflection. And that's what I mean by giving them a different meaning to the spaces. And I guess that's also a task, a very difficult task to change our mind, right? To change how we have been trained to perceive some spaces around us. I think another example are golf courses. I think golf courses for us, the meaning we give to these sort of spaces is connected with maybe socioeconomical status. Well, at least in my country, playing golf is not a common sport. It's a sport that only people with money will do it. So some of us, we are connected with this type of meaning, right? We have golf courses equals rich people. So how about if we start changing the way we see these sort of spaces? Maybe one way to do it, it could be creating the new different, like, programmatic zones, maybe some other events that bring up the whole community around them. Also, I'm not talking about uh, taking the whole space from the people who have actually worked for it to have their exclusivity. It's more about being a little bit more open and inclusive to different parts of the community. So maybe finding the right balance, it's also very key, very important. Another opportunity in cities, I would say cities have lots of potential to be more accessible for different groups of people. For instance, one key term that is coming up as well, very recent... Neurodiverse people, so people with different physical and mental capacities, as well as just different transition. I would call it transitional groups like mothers, like I'm one of them, right? Mothers with prams. From the perspective of mother with prams, I've seen lots of limitations that city has, but of course, lots of opportunities to improve. And I think it's very doable. For instance, just simple thing, when you go with the pram to take the tram, sometimes there are no ramps. So you're with a very heavy pram and with a bunch of things in there. So it's very difficult to access. But I think these little things, they can be done. And I think one of these approaches that's also gaining more interest, at least in Melbourne, is universal design. Is design thinking about many different types of groups and users of the space, and I think that that pathway I think it's more inclusive and I think it's a big opportunity for the city to address and to become better places for live and work. I have one more It's a bit about the um, using some of the spaces for like enhancing the spaces that are already out there. What do I mean by this is Okay, let's take the example of uh, Royal Botanic Gardens. This is one, I think, an amazing space for the ones who don't know what it is. Basically, it's a forest immersed in the city of Melbourne with 38 hectares of area and around 8,000 species of plants from many different parts of the world. I think when you are inside this park... You can experience the tropical humidity and there is when all the senses are in play again. You feel the temperature in your body changes, right? You feel the humidity, you feel, you smell even differently, you see different. It's about the possibilities in the future to enhance more. Those urban parks, for instance, I think that's a great example. To help us to really seek those emotions that we are striving for, such as peacefulness, for instance, a place for recreation. is really a place to recreate yourself, a place to have different types of views of really to get out from your office and forget about that and just focus in the place because those places are designed to enhance all your senses, to be multisensory engaging. So I think we could even design better spaces for recreation, especially. And I think that we have lots of opportunities for doing that. And within
0: these opportunities, what is your role in establishing the future of cities?
1: Well, I feel committed to this research with environmental behavior. I think I'd like to spread a word about this field and thank you again for this channel. I think it's a good start for me to give voice to the field, if I could tell that. (laughs) Because we are not that many in this field, I can tell you worldwide. It's gaining more interest, but this is still, we are few of us. Fighting for across different audiences and creating material, creating content, research about this. I think that's my main priority to connect in a more straightforward way the psychology of people with our spaces.
0: Natalie, you were really generous with your time. I highly appreciate your answers. And we could talk for hours more about what are the biggest obstacles using this environmental behavior research in practice and real life. But I want to be respectful of your afternoon. So do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience?
1: Well, it could be just a reminder. (laughs) i wrap up what I mentioned that we should really... Acknowledge that we are very much connected with our spaces. Please do not take for granted that some spaces, for instance, will be safe because the way they have been all life. <laughs> I would just encourage people that have the capacity so to start some methodologies, exploring some methodologies that can be applied to measure, to assess the way we perceive our spaces. Are they safe? Are they comfortable for ourselves? So that's my Maybe requests or encouragement for the audience. Thank you very much, Natalie. Thank you, Fanny. It was really
0: interesting to hear from Natalie that although there are many problems, the opportunities are also numerous, and her approach to revitalize cities with changing the meaning of different spaces not to mention her interest in applying human sensing in design and attention to neurodiversity, about which Dr. Kingston Day talked in episode number 39, More in Detail. You can find out more about Natalie online. All the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Natalie's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. Additionally, I will highly appreciate if you consider subscribing. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in.
1: What is the Future for Cities podcast?